can be, uh, once, once they do start enforcing, there will be um, up to $10,000 um, penalties for each violation of the act, which is a scary thought considering we're in an environment where, you know, if you're issuing multiple bills in a single occurrence of care, that might be uh, nine times 10,000, right? So right. Um, that that's a concern that I think people should be aware of. It's a little bit premature. We're not in the enforcement period yet, but uh, I think it's safe to say in 2024, I would expect that enforcement um, rulings will start coming down. Welcome to Medical Money Matters, the podcast where you can find experts, answers, and resources so that you can achieve mastery over the financial and business aspects of your practice. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Jill Arena. I began my career in accounting and finance, and I have more than 30 years of experience running medical groups. I own and operate a national healthcare consulting and revenue cycle company, and I am the author of Physician Heal Thy Financial Self. In 2020, I co-founded the Physician Leadership Project, and my passion is to increase financial and business literacy for physicians. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Grant Engrav, healthcare attorney and one of the nation's specialists on the No Surprises Act. Grant has received the designation of Rising Star among super lawyers, and he also serves um, on the executive committee for the health law portion of the Oregon Bar Association. And he is also general counsel for the Oregon Ambulatory Surgical Center Association, better known as OASCA. And Grant, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jill. It's great to be here. I appreciate you joining us. We have um, also, Grant and I have had the opportunity to work together. He has a very close working relationship with the Oregon Board of Medical Examiners and routinely works with physician clients on matters that come before the board. So I have always appreciated that about the work that you do, Grant, on behalf of physicians. So thank you for that. I appreciate that too. It's good It's good work. It's interesting times with the board. So uh, we're happy to be a part of that. I imagine so. That's wonderful. Well, we are here today to talk about the No Surprises Act, which has been in effect for a while. And I think we're at that space now where practices are beginning to experience, you know, the full, full impact of it, the full ramifications of it. Um, so I wonder if you could start just for our physician audience with a little bit of background on the act itself and uh, its purpose, and then when it was drafted. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, maybe the easiest way to, to set that up is to offer an example. Right. So um, if you could imagine, let's say I got a busted knee and I'm going to go get an orthopedic surgeon to take care of it at a local hospital. Um, I might think that, hey, I'm in network here and everything is going to be paid for from my uh, health insurance. Uh, but lo and behold, four months after the surgery, I get a, a nasty gram from the anesthesiologist saying that I owe them $40,000 for the services or whatever the cost. Uh, might be, and I say, no, I'm not paying for that. I thought I was in network. There's a dispute. If the anesthesiologist tries to push that bill, we refer to it as a, a balanced bill. Uh, and the No Surprises Act's goal, giving them the good faith, you know, uh, or the benefit of the doubt there, is that they are trying to eliminate balanced billing, 
and they're trying to put the consumer or patient in a position that they are going to uh, avoid that mess. Uh, and then also, if it all works properly, it should help the provider as well. So that's that's the goal of the act. Uh, it was uh, it's been recently enacted, and since its enactment, there has been a series of guidance from the federal government departments that are implementing and enforcing it. And those things have come in ad hoc. Uh, and there was actually a recent one as of March 16th, uh, which maybe we'll be able to talk about uh, at the end. Yes, absolutely. Well, as ever, the uh, the laws get written and then they get defined in the courts. So that'll be good. We'll circle back on that one. Um, and uh, I appreciate the example. So as I as I understand it, the the law, as as it's aptly named, actually one of the few laws that's aptly named, um, is to help prevent surprise medical bills um, for patients, and um, to potentially encourage people in the industry to coordinate a little bit better, so that patients don't um, get a nasty surprise or a nasty gram. I like that term, um, and uh, I think that's um, harkens. And I, I kept meaning to look up the statistics on this, but I know it's a very high percentage of personal bankruptcies in this country have at their core um, a large medical expense. And that's frequently the number one cause of personal bankruptcy is those unexpected medical bills that perhaps insurance isn't covering. So um, what's your sense for how the new legislation is working out practically in the physician offices? Practically, um, it has been a little bit of a mess from what I've seen uh, because of the guidance. And, uh, and it is very long. It's very complex. I think the actual act is over a thousand pages. Um, and the guidance has come in and it's been filling some of the holes, but not all of them from time to time. So if you're out there and you're feeling confused by the act, you're not alone. Um, in fact, there was this, uh, this recent guidance was actually the result of the Texas uh, Medical Association's um, litigation uh, where they challenged uh, the qualifying payment amount uh, under the act. And just to back up real quick, the qualifying payment amount or QPA is the way the act tells the third party decision maker to evaluate how much is actually due to the provider, and it gets really complicated. Um, but the simple narration of the recent lawsuit was that the Texas Medical Association challenged uh, the formula for the QPA saying that it's unfair to providers, and they prevailed uh, in federal court. And mm. the most recent guidance that we've had um, actually uh, was an attempt to remedy that unfairness. And so they, they brought a little bit more balance to the to the equation, but that's just one of the examples. I mean, good faith estimates, who's the convening provider? There's a lot of things out there that uh, the clinics that I work with are, you know, have struggled with. And, uh, but I would say now that some time has gone by, um, some people are starting to get the rhythm. You know, it's a big operational challenge, but they're starting to get a hang of it. Wonderful. Yeah, we can talk a little bit more about the front desk. And we actually have some information in upcoming episodes um, about the front desk and how to get a handle on the um, various different operational changes that need to happen. I'm really glad to hear you talking about the Texas Medical Association and their impact 
um, positively for other physician groups across the country. Um, and it's, uh, I frequently run into physicians who have some notion that they belong to the state medical association, um, but not a lot of really concrete, like why do they belong to that and what does that association actually do for them? So I love to hear positive outcomes of the lobby um, from any of the medical associations um, across the country. So that's, that's fantastic. Texas, Texas was in there winning one for everybody. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe it's just the vantage point of a lawyer, but a lot of the cases that we read have, you know, the various state and then medical association with their name on it, because this litigation is not simple. You can't walk into most law offices around the country and say, hey, we want to you know, sue the federal government for the unfairness and the No Surprises Act. So definitely um, some props to Texas and their association uh, yeah. for doing that. That's fantastic. Now, how about interesting stories you've heard? Yeah, I think probably the one that comes to mind is on the good faith estimates. I think that has been one of the most confusing things for providers to juggle and also it's a ubiquitous requirement in other words uh, as the law defines it it applies to all healthcare providers so a lot of the no surprises act only applies to very nuanced uh, areas in the practice of medicine so emergency services and we're talking about out-of-network providers in some situations some situations but the good faith estimate requirement of applies to all healthcare providers um, and most of my colleagues and I have interpreted that to you know be the plain meaning of that expression so it's going to apply to physical therapy it's going to apply to mental health you name a provider and it'll likely apply to them uh, and so that creates interesting problems where if we're imagining a healthcare context that's not you know, hey, you're having a surgery and here's how much it's going to cost. Um, if we can imagine something more like a, a mental health environment where the uh, patient or client um, might be being seen once every other week until the end of time, possibly, how do you provide the patient with a good faith estimate? And the guidance has started to do a better job in regard to that. And so basically the way my clients have started to handle that is they give at the outset of treatment a one or two page summary of what the recurring charges are, an estimated frequency, and use a little bit of common sense, but try to put the patient in a position where they will at least understand the incoming bills that will occur uh, over time. That's fantastic. The thinking a little bit more about that, um, and I appreciate the example of the ongoing care for a patient too, and if that's routine care, how challenging that could be for the practice to provide an estimate. You know, do you do that on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis? So um, we'll keep watching for more guidance on how to do that well. As you look at the whole landscape, what types of practices do you think are most heavily impacted? I think that's a great question, and I think there is a clear answer for that. I think it's going to be any facility that performs surgeries um, or um, hospitals. Um, yep. And the reason for so, in the No Surprises Act, the balance billing prohibitions only apply to what the Act calls a healthcare facility, and it does list those entities. So a hospital would be one, an ASC would be one, an independent freestanding emergency 
uh, department would be another. Um, and so there's there's heavy restrictions on those facilities and requires them um, to follow the No Surprises Act rules before balanced billing. And the manner in which it affects them is connected to the very last part of the act, which is the IDR or the Independent Dispute Resolution um, provisions. And mm -hmm. what that means is uh, the act says, okay, the provider is going to balance bill the patient, uh, assuming they've done everything right. The patient doesn't want to pay. Maybe the health insurance will be there behind the scenes. In fact, usually they will. Uh, how are we going to determine what the charge is in this health care context when there was no contract and there's not an in-network rate? And uh, we talked a little bit about the QPA earlier. The IDR system is designed to basically act as a arbitration service, in other words, a, a judicial service where it will um, adjudicate the, the dispute between the provider and whoever is on the hook for paying the bill. And probably one of the biggest shortfalls of the drafters of the bill is not anticipating just how much IDR business there would be. I, I think in the recent guidance it talked about expecting something like 20,000 IDR cases to be filed within the first year. And if I remember correctly, the actual number was over like 150,000. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah, there's a okay. That's a, that's a, yeah, that was, that was kind of a swing and a miss on the estimate there, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Well, as you think about the legislation at, at a high level, what do you want physician owners to know? Yeah, I think the, there's a couple big ticket items that you at least need to be aware of. It gets so detailed, but if you're at least aware of the good faith estimate requirements, in other words, putting the patient on notice of what the charges might be. And there's timelines involved there. I'm not going to recite them here, but they are fairly accessible online. Yeah. Um, that's a big one. Um, also, there are uh, waiver concepts under the Act. So the patient, in certain situations, can waive the requirement to give them a good faith estimate or to be uh, subject to the prohibitions. Uh, and then you can balance bill them. Um, those are big. And then also knowing generally how the IDR process works and the timeline that's involved. Mm -hmm. uh, lawyers are very familiar with deadlines. I know healthcare professionals are experienced with their own deadlines, but there are, the Act imposes new judicial deadlines where if you miss the 30-day window, and it is 30 days, mm -hmm. you can miss your ability to engage in the IDR process and although the implications of that are a little bit fuzzy, the worst case scenario is you're left holding the bag um, and you're never going to get paid for the valuable services. That you just and that's that's key is really to say if we don't have the right systems in place and we fail to meet deadlines inside of that process, then, yeah, risk is the physician isn't getting paid um, for his or her work, um, on behalf of that patient. So, right. um, that's important to keep in mind, as you might imagine, our, uh, podcast is pretty focused on getting physicians paid for what they've done. So that's, uh, um, as I've said many times, that's, that's the game I'm engaged in, in helping our physician listeners play. So, um, that's fantastic. Other than missing deadlines in the IDR process, what are some other common pitfalls for practices? Well, and there was one other thing. So in terms of pitfalls, I think everybody's going to ask, well, what, what happens if I don't comply with the act? And it's a very good 
question. The metaphor that I've made in the past is the rollout of this when talking to other attorneys, it feels like the rollout of HIPAA, where it's very mm -hmm. confusing, they're coming at you fast, nobody's really sure of what happens if there's a non-compliance. So the first thing I want to mention on that is that the enforcement agencies have said we're in a bit of a grace period, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not going to start enforcing and dropping the hammer on non-compliance right away. They understand, I mean, recent guidance came out as, as recently as last week. So they're aware of that, right? So that, that's, that's good. Um, but ultimately there can be, uh, once, once they do start enforcing, there will be um, up to $10,000 um, penalties for each violation of the act, which is a scary thought considering we're in an environment where, you know, if you're issuing multiple bills in a single occurrence of care, that might be uh, nine, times 10,000, right? So right. Um, that that's a concern that I think people should be aware of. It's a little bit premature. We're not in the enforcement period yet, but uh, I think it's safe to say in 2024, I would expect that enforcement um, rulings will start coming down. We'll start to begin. Well, and those of us who are old enough to remember when HIPAA was first discussed, I, you know, there was discussion about it in the late 90s, and I believe the first date they had proposed to roll it out was in 2001. And I think that it actually got rolled out in 2003. And then to your point, there was a lot of grace in there because um, there weren't, uh, there wasn't a lot of enforcement activity going on right as the legislation was young. And then as it gets defined in the courts, um, that's the hard part is uh, if you're one of those entities that gets caught early and then you're, you know, in the midst of a court case so that the legislation can be better defined. Uh, you don't want to be that group um, in the middle of that. So good for good for practice owners to be aware of what it is. Um, and also, I think much like HIPAA, we need to right size the hype around it. You know, there's uh, we still have people that misinterpret HIPAA. Uh, you know, today, 20 years later, and are um, overly rigid in terms of what they will and will not share with their medical colleagues, you know. And um, so I think uh, to use that example, um, there could be some, you know, over interpretation um, of when it's applicable. And so I, I just encourage our listeners, um, if there are questions you know, err on the side of asking more questions about it. So you don't get in that space of, yeah, no one wants to pay a $10,000 fine. Absolutely. No one wants to pay a $10,000 fine times nine or any bigger number. So that's, uh, um, that would uh, be good guidance for our listeners. Um, and now you've mentioned a couple of times there was new guidance out this week. So why don't we delve into that a little bit as it evolves here? Yeah, yeah. So the new guidance is specifically in response to the Texas Medical Association case. And just to succinctly summarize what we talked about earlier, that case said the qualifying payment amount calculation is unfair. Um, we shouldn't give um, too much credit to a formula that is embedded in the healthcare payers' systems, but isn't necessarily relevant to how you know, an individual physician's experience and market value or market um, share um, is when determining what the amount should, should be paid. So um, the, the court, um, the court's ruling was in favor of the Texas Medical Association. Uh, and the guidance that came out included some new factors. And I've got them here just on the list, hot off the press, I guess. But um, so the level of training and experience along with quality and outcome measures of the provider seems commonsensical, but the, that new guidance did reinforce that. 
Like I said, the market share of the provider is another. Uh, the acuity of the patient or the complexity of furnishing the service. Uh, and then demonstration of good faith uh, on both sides. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the, the essential aspect, I mean, in a way, as it affects the day-to-day -day operations of uh, clinics, you don't need to worry too much about the new guidance because it's really focused on how much are you going to get paid. So it won't affect anything in terms of how you handle getting out the good faith estimates, how you handle getting out the waivers, interactions with patients. But it is more of a favorable ruling when it comes to calculating how much the doctor will get paid. <laughs> Wonderful. So let's go back for a minute. I always I always do better understanding new concepts if I put some numbers to them. So um, why don't we use your example um, of the person going for maybe an a, a urgent or emergent knee surgery? So maybe we've got a repair there. Um, could you just kind of walk us through what happens like when that patient checks in um, and what needs to happen in order to be um, fully compliant with no surprises? Right. So there's okay, a couple things. So the notice, there are notice provisions, just like HIPAA has some notice provisions. So you need to put the patient on notice that the No Surprises Act exists and that there are prohibitions against balance billing them. Um, the requirements in the act say that there needs to be a posting in the facility as well as online. And there's funny language about how it has to be easily accessible via Google SEO searches and stuff like that. New world, you know. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, and then if you want to balance bill the patient, potentially, if there's a non-payment, you need to give them a good faith estimate of uh, what you expect the um, healthcare to cost. And there are deadlines involved in the statute as to when you need to get the patient those deadlines. There's different deadlines for when it's scheduled further than three days out, when it's scheduled within three days, and when it's more of an emergency um, basis. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you may consider giving um, the, the patient a waiver for some of the No Surprises Act uh, provisions. And there's certain rules on uh, when you can do that, when you can't do that. And that's all in the act. And those ones are a little bit more easy to understand. Um, and then once you do those things, you, I mean, that's, it's a long act, but when you accomplish those three, you put yourself in a pretty good position, um, to balance bill the patient in the event that there's uh, non-payment. You, you preserve your right to do that, right? So in a way, there's an interesting market dynamic where a lot of this will be somewhat mute as long as, you know, the payer pays or the patient pays right. and everything goes according to plan. But like most laws that we're concerned about, it's the one out of a thousand uh, that might come up that might leave your facility holding a bag on a much larger amount, which is what you have to prepare for. Yeah, absolutely. And that thinking about that whole scenario of a patient with maybe a semi-urgent knee surgery um, that could wind up with a large anesthesia bill uh, because the patient didn't control which anesthesiologist was doing it and didn't know to ask, is that is the anesthesiologist doing my case also in network for me? So um, I, I I dislike the complexity that the legislation is adding, but I like the notion of attempting to keep a patient from a very unpleasant surprise. So um, it's a part and parcel of what would be a much longer conversation about um, how as patients, we behave in a way, and I do this myself even as an industry insider of 30 plus years, 
I am not always clear on what my benefits level are as a patient, and I'm also not always clear who is providing me care. For instance, if I have a lab test that goes to pathology or some x-ray study that is then read by a radiologist, I am not always asking up front, is that radiologist in network for me? Is that pathologist in network for me? So um, even as someone who should know better, I don't always behave in such a... Um, enlightened uh, consumer patient way as I might. So um, I think it's I think it's really well-intended legislation, much like HIPAA, really well-intended legislation. And it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. Uh, yeah, well, the same thing, Jill. I always laugh at myself as a healthcare attorney when I'm actually getting care and I don't understand certain provisions of the care. But my wife laughs twice as hard, I will say. <laughs> um, but, but the nice thing about the, the bill to give it credit, is that a lot of what they're trying to uh, solve is the emergency services aspect of healthcare. Yep. And that's where even a 30-year industry insider, um, when you're in an emergency, you're not thinking clearly, you might be incapacitated, you can imagine all of the different complexities that might you know, very reasonably excuse you from asking whether the anesthesiologist is in network. Right. Uh, so, yeah, and so the bill does a good job of trying to tackle that. Uh, hopefully the guidance will continue to be responsive until we get uh, a framework that totally makes sense, but it's at least a step forward. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned a framework, and I want to call out that we have a wonderful flowchart from you, from one of the early presentations you've made to our industry groups, and we will include that in the show notes. It is uh, one of the most clear and easy to read and easy to understand guides that I've seen. So for all of our listeners, we'll put that link in the show notes so that you'll get that. We'll also put information about Grant and his background and how to reach him. If you have any follow-up questions, we'll get all of that out there as well. And I would say... Um, in closing, uh, Grant, if you think about the act, what do you most want our physician listeners to know? I would say two things. One, if you tackle those big three that we mentioned earlier, the good faith estimates, understanding the IDR and the waiver, um, if, and if you implement those into your system, you're going to be accomplishing the big parts of, of the act and you're going to be tackling the scarier parts as it might result in bad outcomes for the clinic mm -hmm. so it might seem like know, a thousand pages is a lot there's a lot of technical rules in there but if you focus on those three things to start off with i think you're going to be putting yourself in a really good position and then as we get more guidance uh, i think that you'll be in a good position to implement the more technical things over time in the same way that we saw happen uh, with uh, Wonderful. Grant, thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing your expertise today and helping us take all this complex legislation and breaking it down so we can digest it. It's absolutely my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on here. And I'm just impressed with both, both of us for not making too many No Surprises Act puns. Uh, we did well with, with keeping the puns to a low level. <laughs> thank you again. I so appreciate your time. Absolutely, Joe. Take care. Bye-bye. You can find more information online at medicalmoneymatterspodcast.com and you can subscribe to the Medical Money Matters content website for physician leaders to find budget templates and many other tools. We've included those links in the show notes. 
As I like to close out these podcasts, congratulations on taking the next step in your professional development and for making the commitment to learn about the financial and business aspects of your practice. I look forward to being on this journey with you and send you my heartfelt gratitude for all that you do for your patients all day, every day.